James part 11, um, compassion for the poor. And, you know, James is eventually going to get around to stepping on all of our toes. He is going to eventually getting around to making all of us feel uncomfortable. And this week was my week. I'll just tell you that right now, okay? Um, in 21st century modern day America, we don't like to talk about this much because we feel vaguely guilty that we have so much. But beyond that, we're just not sure what to do to fix the problem. Not for the people that are close to us that we know, not for the people that we see in our communities, standing on the side of the road with, with signs and standing in lines at soup kitchens and food banks. And, and we for sure don't know what to do about the people that are across the globe from us that just seem to be in such a situation that, I mean, I don't, my entire life, it seems like people have been talking about helping these people that are over there and they're still in exactly the same position. And so what do we do? You know, it's like it's hard to know what to do. Um, but James says that's really no excuse for not, not engaging the, the, the question and doing our best to try to do something about it. In James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, James says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, Goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothes. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. And so between this week and next week, we are going to focus in on um, basically this section of Scripture. Um, and I'll just tell you right now, the, the, the lesson sheet, if you're looking at it, it has four points. We're only getting to the first two today, all right? And then uh, next week we will hit the last two. Um, and together it will kind of give us this full picture of, of what poverty is and then maybe what we can do to help. Because that's the question, right? What do I do to help? I watched, I spent this week watching a ton of documentaries on Netflix and iTunes uh, that are sort of about this question. Um, Poverty Inc., I don't know if you've ever seen that one. It's about the big business of disaster and ongoing relief aid to, uh, well, to, 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 to poverty-stricken nations. And what, that one is, if you're going to watch two, uh, two documentaries this week, watch Poverty, Inc. first, and then watch Ducali's Dream after that. It's uh, Hugh Jackman's documentary about uh, fair trade coffee. You'll feel really good when Ducali's Dream gets done. You'll be like, ah, yes, I think I have an idea of what I can do. If, but if, when I got done watching uh, Poverty, Inc., I was, kind of, uh, I was kind of bummed out because it's like, you know, what they were showing is how when we... When we give to some of these organizations that help people in third world countries, it's not all of them, but some of them, not only are we not helping, we're actually making it worse for the people that we are trying to help. And so, you know, the, that's the question is, what do I do? What do I do to help these people that God, I know God wants me to help them, I know God cares about them, but it's like you also hear the other side of things, like if, if you're not careful, you'll... You'll, you'll give to somebody that's really just scamming you, and then you'll hear the other side, but, but how do you know? And then it's pretty soon you start wondering, how do I make sure I get good advice? Because good advice, as it turns out, is really important. Um, okay.
receptionist. Should I go for it? Absolutely, you should. Yep. All righty, let's get started. What is she into? I know Pam pretty well. I know the things that she likes, and just as important, I know the things that she hates. So one of the things that she likes is pranks. And the things that she hates? Frisbee-based competitions. Are you kidding? She, I started the main Frisbee golf club at Cornell, where I went to college. I live to frolic. Lead off with that. She loves hunting. She also loves those ads for Six Flags with the old guy. Also, do you speak Pamela? Pamela Medina. Listen, you're cute. There's no getting around it. So, I don't know if you like country music, but I was thinking maybe one of these days we could drive out to the field, crank up some tunes, smoke a few macanudos, maybe even toss a disc around. But wait, who day they ain't they happen? Wow. I think about it. I'll let you back. kind of engaging in this question, especially this week, you know, is we're getting an awful lot of bad advice. Some of it is really well-intentioned bad advice, and some of it is corrupt, abusive bad advice. And so it's not easy to know what to do. It's not. But what James is saying is it's important that we we educate ourselves, that we do our best. In James chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, he says, Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters, hasn't God chosen the poor in this world, but you dishonor the poor? Now, those two words are actually very closely related in the original language. It's like the idea of chosen is like he is, he is, he is pursuing the poor. He is, he is engaging the poor. And to dishonor means that we are like sort of like keeping them at arm's length. You know, well, let's just not think about this problem. And it's getting harder and harder to do the more technology uh, invades our lives. And it's like you, it, in James's day, the only poverty that you could that you knew about was the poverty that you saw with your own eyes. Now we know about every every inch of this earth what's going on there. And so we need to learn, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, I believe, to engage this question, to think about what we can do. Now, I don't know. I'm not going to give you a whole lot of answers today. Um, next week, we'll get a little bit more into the answer side of things. Uh, but we st we'll still be like, you know, it's like I, on the back of the lesson sheet, I've given you several books, documentaries, um, websites that you can go to to sort of educate yourself, are all of them going to be telling you 100% the truth or, or be 100% accurate? No, probably not. But the important thing is that you start thinking about these things. And like I said, that's what happened to me this week. That's one of the things about preaching through uh, an entire book, just, you know, sort of verse by verse, 
is you don't get to skip the stuff that makes you uncomfortable. <laughs> and one thing that I've realized this week is I've done a lot of, well, 17 years I've been preaching. I don't know that I've ever done one lesson that was just about poverty. I might have mentioned it in one of the points and then moved on because I, I don't know what to tell you what to do. I don't know, I don't know what to do myself, you know? And it's fascinating. Um, Jesus in the Gospels, he preaches, and we went through this lesson series just last year, this, the, the, the most influential speech that was ever given in the history of the world, the Sermon on the Mount, right? And I've done it three different times. I preached through Matthew chapters 5 through 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. But that's not the only time he preached that sermon. Scholars think that basically he, he, that was sort of a go-to lesson for him, that that was like the important points that he wanted everybody to know about his kingdom. Over in Luke chapter 6, you have a, an incredibly similar, shorter version, but incredibly similar. Um, but it's, in, it's given in the south. Sermon on the Mount's given in the north, nearby where Jesus was raised, uh, on the side of a mountain. Luke chapter 6, they call it the Sermon on the Plain. And it's given down in the south, near where he was born in Bethlehem, near where he would die in Jerusalem. Um, and it's on, a, on this flat area. Now, I don't know about you, I'd never really even heard the term Sermon on the Plain before. And like I said, I've preached through the Sermon on the Mount at least three times. Uh, with like 17-part series going into depth in what the Sermon on the Mount says... I have never once preached a lesson series on Luke chapter 6. Uh, I've never even preached a lesson on Luke chapter 6. And what I read this week is that the Sermon on the Mount in the Western world, that is the one that, 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 we, that preachers talk about. Because it's got these sort of uh, spiritual concepts. The, these, these are Beatitudes from Luke chapter 6, from the Sermon on the Plain. Sermon on the Mount are like, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? He's like, blessed are, you know, the meek. It's like, we, we kind of know what to do with that. But in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says things like this. He says, uh, blessed, God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. He goes on later and he says, what sorrow awaits for you who are rich? For you have your only happiness now. What sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now? For a time of awful hunger awaits you. Westerners don't know what to do with that. We're like, what, what, is, what does that mean? You know, what, I, that, because that's us, right? That's most of us. And so preachers don't like to preach on it. People in church don't like to hear it. And what I learned this week is the Sermon on the Mount is one of the number one series preached through by Western pastors. Do you hear the ringing? Okay, I just want to make... Do you guys hear the ringing? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so it's not just me. Somebody answer that phone. All right. So Western pastors preach through this concept of uh, the Sermon on the Mount more often than just about any other topic. In the East, where people are poor, Luke chapter 6 is preached on over and over and over again. The people there love that sermon. And so I just think, gosh, we, we need to understand what the Bible has to say about poverty if we are going to be followers of this man named Jesus who built his life around outreach to those who needed him the most. So, like I said, this week we're going to look at the first two points of this lesson. Next week we'll finish up with the, the last two. 
And uh, if you're looking, you're like, thinking, gosh, I, I, what can I do? Sign up and come on Wednesday. Okay, so what do I need to do? Uh, how do I, how should I respond to poverty? Number one, I should respond with mercy. Over and over and over, you will find this concept in the Bible, mercy and compassion. Um, I, I don't know about you, but it's like a lot of times, uh, Western churches, when we talk about poverty, we talk about irresponsibility and people wasting things that they've had. And the Bible does talk a little bit about that kind of behavior. You know, there's the famous passage from 1 Thessalonians where Paul says, if somebody's not willing to work, then they won't eat. That's just the way that it goes, you know. But if they're willing to work, well, then we'll help them. It's like that's one thing that Western Christianity really focuses in on. And the Bible is big on personal responsibility and, and doing the best with what you have and, and working hard. The Bible is big on that. But there are over 200 explicit passages in the Bible about poverty, just poverty. Right? There's tons more. There's close to a thousand where the Bible loves in, you know, the poor, the oppressed, the, the weak, the, you know, things like that. But just about poverty, there's 200. Like maybe 12% of them are about people wasting what they have. And the other 80 to 90% are about people who never had anything and, and they, they, they work as hard as they can. They never do get anything. Even the story of the prodigal son, right? This, the, the boy who, who goes to his dad and says, I can't wait for you to die. Give me my part of the estate now. And his dad does it, which is shocking. And he goes off into faraway lands and he wastes it all on what the Bible calls riotous living, right? That'll get your mind going. What is riotous living exactly? But then he comes back. And after having wasted and squandered and been irresponsible with that money, he comes back to his father, not saying, I want back in the family or not give me more money. He comes back saying, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Please take me back as one of your slaves. And everybody that was listening that day would have thought, oh, yeah, I can't wait to hear what the dad says to him. You know, be gone, you know, that type of thing. It's like because he was so irresponsible, so wasteful. His dad welcomes him back into the family. He, he forgives him. And everybody there would have gasped, no way. You know, even the people that were in that boy's exact shoes would have thought there's no way that dad is going to invite him back in. That is who God is. And that's who God wants us to be. It doesn't mean that you have to keep throwing good money after, after, after people that, won't, that, that, are, that are abusing it. But just keep in mind, 80 to 90% of the verses in the Bible are about not people who abuse what they have, but people who never had. In uh, Proverbs 10, verse 15, the Bible says that the wealth of the rich is their fortress, but the poverty of the poor is their destruction. What you see over and over and over in the Bible, and this, this particular passage is fascinating, because usually, almost universally, when the Bible says that something is, brings destruction into our lives, brings death into our lives, it's because we've done something, right? We've, we've made a foolish decision that has brought destruction into our lives. But here, Solomon says, for the poor, their destruction is poverty itself. It's this sort of self-perpetuating vortex, you know, like a whirlpool that is so hard to climb out of. And people will try and try and try, but if you don't have anything that this world values, 
you will never get out of that vortex. Now, sometimes people will climb out because they have smarts. You know, people say, well, I didn't have anything. If you climbed out on your own, you've got, you, you're smart, you work hard, or maybe you're incredibly beautiful, and so that's something our society values, and so sometimes that will pull you out of that vortex. Maybe you have incredible talent. You're a basketball player, or a football player, or a dancer, or a singer. Sometimes that will pull you out of that vortex. But for people that don't have any of those things, they are stuck. Society throws them away. It has happened since the beginning of time. And Solomon says, if, if nobody else cares about those people, nobody is going to do anything for them. Poverty is in it and of itself, its own destruction. Now, sometimes people will say, well, why didn't God fix it? Why doesn't God just sort of, you know, even the board or, you know, and I think I mentioned this last week. I don't know if I did in this service or not, but we don't have time to get into all of the intricacies between why bad things happen on this earth to some people and good things happen to others. You know, Jesus says this, this really interesting thing in, in the book of Mark where he says God sends his sunshine on the good and the bad, and he sends his rain on the good and the bad. And I will just say this. I think studying the story of creation and the fall of mankind, the first sin in Genesis chapter 3 and the book of Job and how that whole battle takes place on this earth in the, in the life of this guy named Job, God has bound himself by a certain set of rules of engagement, I guess you could say, that he can't just step in and fix everything. That's why over and over and over in the pages of the Bible, he says, you need to care about these people as much as I do. If, if every single follower of Jesus in this world cared just a it, well, not just cared, but cared and educated themselves on how to help people that are in this vortex, the world would be a much different place, much different place. And so this, this concept of poverty, it's its its, its own destruction. In um, Proverbs 14, verse 20, the Bible says that the poor are despised, even by their neighbors, while the rich have many friends. I heard a guy this week talking about this verse, and he said, he said, you know, you look at that, you're like, are the poor really despised by their neighbors? He said, think about it. What happens anytime somebody who is in that whirlpool, who is living in poverty, starts to pull themselves out of that place and starts to get some, some resources? They move out. They go somewhere else. Why? Well, they may not hate their neighbors, but they sure don't want to be there. They want to be somewhere else. And I'm not telling you this because it's bad to want to move to someplace that's safer to raise your family or to, to have a home or to have a business or any of those things. I'm just pointing out the world is broken. It has been since, since Adam and Eve ate that fruit. And as long as there have been societies, this has been happening. And so God says, I need you to care about this. In Deuteronomy 15, verse 10, he says, give generously to the poor, not grudgingly. For the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. There will always be some in the land who are poor. That is why I am commanding you to share freely with the poor and with other Israelites in need. So, the Bible says, number one, we should respond to poverty with mercy. As a matter of fact, there are two words in the Bible that are both translated poor in, in English, but they are two different words in the original language. The first one means without, needy, right? Never had, never will end up having again. The second one 
basically means oppressed or injustice, and that leads us to the second point for today. We need to also respond to poverty with justice. Um, that's one thing that this, uh, you, can, you can read the book or you can watch the documentary, um, The Business of Poverty, um, Poverty Inc. They, they both will tell you the same thing, that, that oftentimes when we reach out to help someone, not only do we not make it better, we make it worse. And I, we don't have time for me to get into all the, the ways that that happens. But there is this one quote that kept coming up over and over and over again in these, in these documentaries. They were talking to people who, who were living in it and who were like advising, this is not helping, do this instead. And this, this almost exact same quote kept coming up. People were saying, we know that the people who are giving they're doing it from a place of compassion. They said it comes from a place of compassion. They want to help, and that's a good thing. But we need to educate people to help not just with their hearts, but also with their minds. And so we need to learn what it is that really helps and what it is that doesn't. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 23, the Bible says a poor person, and now this is the word for oppression, right? An oppressed person. An oppressed person's farm may produce much food, but injustice sweeps it all away. And so the other side of, the, of this coin is that not only do they not have much, but even when they start to get something, it's taken away. And so that's when God says, you need to look at that and you need to speak up for these people. And it's been happening since the beginning. It really has. And to kind of give you an idea and to kind of lighten the mood a little bit and let us take a breath, uh, I figured we would watch this uh, lesson on uh, oppression and uh, governmental workings. Old woman, man, man, sorry. What height lives in that castle over there? I'm 37. What? I'm 37, I'm not old. Well, I can't just call you man. You could say Dennis. I didn't know you were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother to find out, did you? I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind you looked... What I object to is that you automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. How do you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers. By hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. If there's ever going to be any progress... There is we'll some lovely filth down here. Oh, how do you do? How do you do, good lady? I'm Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? Well, we all are. We are all Britons. And I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there you go, bringing class into it again. Well, that's what it's all about. If only people would... Please, hear. please, good people. I am in haste. Who lives in that castle? No one lives there. Then who is your lord? We don't have a lord. What? I told you. We're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a civil majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet. But by a two-thirds majority in the case of be all Be quiet. I order you to be quiet. Order, oh, who does he think he is? I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how do you become king, then? The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water. 
signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. <laughs> Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! But you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Come, come. I mean, if I went round saying I was an emperor just because some moistened bitch that loved a scimitar at me, they put me away. Shut up! Will you shut up? Ah, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Shut up! Oh, come and see the violence inherent in the system! Help! Help! I'm being repressed! Oh, what a giveaway. Do you hear that? Do you hear that, eh? That's what I'm on about. Do you see him repressing me? You saw it, didn't you? <laughs> and that's funny, right? I mean, that, that's funny. Oh, some of you are like, that. I don't find that funny at all. But some of us find that incredibly funny. Um, but God doesn't find poverty funny at all. And he, he's hoping, it's, it's, with everything that he has, that his people will learn to choose, to engage with the poor instead of dishonoring them, ignoring them. Now I know that it's like, what can I do? How can I fix this? I can't, I can't help everybody. And you're right, you can't. Nobody can help everybody, but everybody can help somebody. And I don't know what that's gonna look like in your life. Uh, like I said, if you're thinking, gosh, I wanna do something, I just don't know what. One great way to start is come on Wednesday, and you will be given a tool to begin and to sort of begin this engagement in this process if you want. Uh, there are a lot of uh, resources listed on the back of the lesson sheet this week. Spend some time educating yourself. Talk about it. Think about it. Do what you can to help these people because it is, it is the Old Testament it's like the, the, the law is all about take care of these people. The prophets are about God sending people to say to his, to his nation, you are not helping these people. You're making it worse. Then Jesus comes and lives his life pursuing these people everywhere he goes. And then the, the New Testament, it's throughout the New Testament again. I'll end with this. Proverbs 3, verse 18, 31, verse 8 through 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. That is our job, okay? Everybody. I don't know what that's going to look like in your life. I'm not even sure what it's going to look like in my life. This week has been really uncomfortable for me. I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to come and share that with all of you. you know? <laughs> so, you know, if, if you're feeling like your toes have been stepped on, join the club. Um, do something about it. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you came for all of us and not just for those who either find themselves in a position of power and, and comfort or those who are able to climb out of, out of uh, poverty and into one of those places. And so, Lord, we just pray that you will help us, no matter where we are on that continuum, that you will help us to educate ourselves, to care, and to engage with this problem of poverty that is such a big, big problem in this world. Lord, teach us to be more like your son. In his name we pray. Amen. <laughs>